Stanford University. I'm uh, Aaron Rodriguez, the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. I'd like to welcome you all to this uh, presidential lecture by Daniel Dennett. The presidential lectures are sponsored by the Office of the President of Stanford University and administered by the Humanities Center. I'd like to say a few words about the format. After tonight's lecture, we will have time for two or three brief questions. Then tomorrow afternoon, there will be a discussion session at the Humanities Center at 4 p.m., where you will have a chance to ask further questions in a more informal environment. All are welcome to participate in the discussion session. Please also note that Professor Dennett has signed some books, uh, which are available in the alcove to my left um, after the lecture. Now, uh, let me turn to Helen Longino who will introduce uh, Daniel Dennett. Helen is the Clarence Irving Lewis Professor of Philosophy and Chair of Stanford's Philosophy Department. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Rodrigue. It's indeed a privilege to introduce tonight's presidential lecturer. Daniel Dennett is a philosopher and public intellectual extraordinaire. Uh, someone used the phrase rock star, and I think it's only someone of Dennett's stature who could bring out uh, a group this size, standing room only. He's the author of 14 books uh, and the subject of almost as many. <laughs> he's, he's the uh, author also of hundreds of scholarly articles, but also of essays in non-scholarly venues to which he has brought his talent for clear, forceful and humorous expression of challenging ideas. Some of you may also know him as the co-editor with Douglas Hofstadter of The Mind's Eye, a very popular book some years ago. Professor Dennett is unafraid of controversy and has engaged in vigorous public debate on topics ranging from adaptationism to the nature of religious belief. That combination of philosophical acuity, wit, and public concern is what brings uh, so many of you here tonight. Let me just uh, remind you of some of the titles of his uh, books. Uh, his first book was Content and Consciousness. Um, he followed that with Brainstorms, Elbow Room, The Intentional Stance, Consciousness Explained, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, Kinds of Minds, Philosophy of Intentionality, that was published in Hungarian. Freedom Evolves, Sweet Dreams, Philosophical Obstacles to a Science of Consciousness, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, and Dove Nascono le Idee, which was published in Italian. All of the books which were originally published in English have been translated into multiple languages, and I won't uh, go through them all here. Um, Professor Dennett received his PhD from, uh, his DPhil actually, he didn't receive a PhD, he received his Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford University, where he studied with noted mid-century analytic philosopher Gilbert Ryle. Uh, Ryle 
had a talent for phrase making, and one of his best known phrases is that of the ghost in the machine, uh, which he used to refer to the Cartesian view uh, about the soul, which was somehow attached to the human body, which he understood as a machine. Well, I don't know if uh, Professor Dennett got his talent for phrase making from Professor Ryle, but he has certainly carried on the tradition of creating uh, very catchy phrases to encapsulate uh, challenging philosophical ideas. So from Dennett, we have the multiple drafts model of consciousness, um, the idea of greedy reductionism, uh, which is the effort to explain away phenomena rather than to explain them. He thinks our job ought to be to explain phenomena such as consciousness and free will, uh, not to give accounts that show them to be illusions of some kind, as has been the uh, strategy of some physicalists and materialists. Um, the idea of the intuition pump. Uh, the intuition pump is um, the strategy of a thought experiment uh, which is designed to reinforce problematic intuitions that Dennett thinks we would be better off without. Um, so intuition pumps are things that are used by his opponents in debate, <laughs> not by Professor Dennett himself. Um, these uh, catchy phrases, as well as his uh, quick wit, make him uh, not just the author of a book about uh, somebody else's dangerous idea, but make him a very dangerous debater. Um, after starting his career at UC Irvine, he moved to Tufts University in 71 and um, has remained there, at least nominally, since then. He's now the university professor and Austin B. Fletcher professor of philosophy, as well as a co-director of Tufts Center for Cognitive Studies. I say nominally because Professor Dennett is in much demand as a lecturer, as we have evidence uh, uh, here tonight. He's held fellowships um, at Bristol in the United Kingdom, uh, Bielefeld in Germany, the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, uh, at the Australian National University, and the Collegium Budapest, as well as at Stanford's Center for Study of, um, uh, Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. He's also been a visiting professor at prestigious institutions in the UK and in the United States and overseas. He's given lectures all over the world, um, including the Jean Nico lectures at the uh, Institut Nico in Paris, the John Locke lectures in Oxford, the Darwin lectures at Cambridge, the Daewoo lectures in Korea, to name just a few. He's been a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences since 1971. As you can probably discern from the titles of the books I listed a moment ago, Professor Dennett's principal philosophical concern has been the defense of a strong naturalism about human capacities. He's argued for a philosophy of mind that is based in empirical science, empirical science, empirical psychology, and neurobiology. In recent years, he's been exploring the resources of evolutionary theory, especially the theory of natural selection, to explain the distinctiveness of human capacities. These concerns come together in his lecture tonight, the evolution of why as the key to free will. Please join me in welcoming Professor Daniel Dennett. Can we have the slide? Thank, thank you all for coming, my goodness. Uh, I am honored to be uh, presidential lecturer here. Uh, I follow in a very distinguished company, and it's a, uh, it's a thrill to see you all here. Um, I was here in October giving a talk in Bill Durham's wonderful 
biology course, and there may be some of you who are at that lecture. If so, let me say, do not worry, although you will see some slides that you saw in October, uh, uh, more than half the slides are different and the emphasis will be different. So you're not just getting a rerun of what you heard in October. This is truth in advertising here. Okay, let's start with some Dilbert. So here's Dilbert, thank goodness. Do you think the chemistry of the brain controls what people do? Of course. Then how can we blame people for their actions? Because people have free will to do as they choose. Are you saying that free will is not part of the brain? Of course it is, but it's the part of the brain that's out there just being kind of free. I love the hand waving. So you're saying the free will part of the brain is exempt from the natural laws of physics? Obviously, otherwise we couldn't blame people for anything they do. You think the free will part of the brain is attached or does it just float nearby? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> now, that is the free will problem and it is also the problem, the problem with the problem, which is to think that physics has anything to do with this. And I want to argue it doesn't have anything to do with free will and that the key to free will is not physics, it's evolutionary biology. I'm going to try to explain that. So evolutionary theory, not physics, is the key to understanding the phenomenon of freedom. It explains how we can be free when our parts aren't free. And if that first strikes you as, well, that's impossible, just stop and think for a moment. We can explain why things are red even though their smallest parts aren't red. We can explain why things are alive even though their smallest parts aren't alive. So why couldn't we explain how things are free in an important sense even though their parts aren't free? Now, I'm going to use Darwin's great idea, and I want to say why it was so great, especially in this year, 2009, the Darwin year all around the globe. What's great about it is that it unites the world of purposeless causation, the world of physics, with the world of meaning, from physics to, to ethics and to poetry and even to free will. This is the theory that unifies all of these under a single perspective. Well, why is Darwin's idea dangerous? People used to ask me this years ago when I wrote the book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. They don't ask me that so much anymore. I think events have, have sort of overtaken it. People realize why this is a dangerous idea. But my, my favorite answer to this is, well, suppose tomorrow they decided to drive on the right in the UK. Would that be dangerous? Oh, yes. Oh yes, that would be dangerous. But stop and reflect. Uh, in Sweden, not so long ago, in fact on Sunday, September 3rd, 1967, they switched from driving on the left to driving on the right. There were almost no accidents. I don't know if there were any fatalities, just a few accidents. That's because the Swedish civil service had worked for years preparing for this day and everybody did it in unison all at once. Smooth. Now, if the Swedish Civil Service could have arranged for the reception of Darwin's Origin of Species, <laughs> prepared the way, then maybe we wouldn't have the collision zones that we have. But we have tremendous collision zones because Darwin's theory really is 
revolutionary in a way that is, I think, still insufficiently recognized. And that's part of what I'm going to be talking about. And here is the key to what was so strangely revolutionary. You'll recognize this as a part of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And in the central panel, we see one of the most famous uh, visual representations of what I call the trickle-down theory of intelligent creation. Uh, it takes a big, fancy, smart thing to create still pretty darn smart thing, but nothing as smart as the one that made it. And this is an idea that is tremendously intuitive. And this is what Darwin overturned. And one of his earliest critics, a man known for nothing else than this high dudgeon criticism, summed it up in one of my favorite passages. This is from the Athenaeum, which was sort of the New York Review of Books of its day, published in London shortly after The Origin of Species was published. In the theory with which we have to deal, absolute ignorance is the artificer, so that we may enunciate as the fundamental principle of the whole system that in order to make a perfect and beautiful machine, it's not requisite to know how to make it. The capital letters are in the original. This man was, in, was, was outraged. This proposition will be found on careful examination to express in condensed form the essential purport of the theory and to express in a few words all Mr. Darwin's meaning, who, by a strange inversion of reasoning, seems to think absolute ignorance fully qualified to take the place of absolute wisdom in all the achievements of creative skill. A strange inversion of reasoning. Yes, exactly right. And it's this strange inversion of reasoning which some people never get their heads around and don't accept. And that's what causes all the problems. Years ago, a student gave me this, uh, a, a little creationist pamphlet. And it had this wonderful page in it, which I'd love to show people. Test two. Do you know of any building that didn't have a builder? Yes, no. Do you know of any painting that didn't have a painter? Yes, no. Do you know of any car that didn't have a maker? Yes, no. If you answered yes for any of the above, Give details. Take that, you evolutionists. <laughs> but, but in fact, this, the idea that this, this propaganda exploits is precisely the idea that Darwin did overthrow. And I want to ally it with another idea, another strange inversion from another great British thinker, Alan Turing, who was close as anybody deserves the title of inventor of the computer. Let's put them together. Remember, before Turing, this is what computers looked like. These, these are pre-Turing computers. Most of, them, most of them were women. In the old days, computers had to understand arithmetic. They had to appreciate the reasons. Turing recognized that this was not necessary. So here's Darwin, still in caps. In order to make a perfect and beautiful machine, it's not requisite to know how to make it. Here's Turing. In order to be a perfect and beautiful computing machine, it's not requisite to know what arithmetic is. You put the two together, and they really are closely related ideas. And both of them cause conniptions in some people. They have been sources of tremendous anxiety, and I'm going to address them both tonight. 
in very brief compass. Many people just can't abide Darwin's strange inversion, and we call those people, of course, creationists or intelligent design people. But there are people that can't abide Turing's strange inversion, too. And I've got a new name for them. I call them mind creationists. And mind creationists include some very eminent thinkers. Here are three well-known mind creationists from my discipline. Jerry Fodor. Uh, read his London Review of Books 2007 piece. Tom Nagel, read his latest Philosophy of Public Affairs piece. And John Searle. Uh, this is the idea of original intentionality, which he's been pushing for 30 years, roughly speaking. All of them have a real problem with Turing's strange inversion. <sighs> You might say that they think of the mind as a skyhook, as a near miraculous device that is a, an original fount of intelligence and creativity, not the product of a, of a process which fundamentally consists of a bunch of biologically engineered gadgets. Now here's, here's a skyhook. <laughs> this, wonderful, this wonderful drawing appeared in the Atlantic Monthly shortly after uh, Darwin's Dangerous Idea came out. And uh, uh, it was called Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> and this, of course, is Brunelleschi's dome. And what's particularly, I, I tried to find the artist and talk with him, and I've never been able to get in touch with him, because I wondered if he, uh, if he, if he knew how apt this was, because Brunelleschi, who built the great dome in Florence, um, putting that so-called lantern, that top piece on there, was one of the great engineering triumphs of, of the day. And in order to do it, Brunelleschi didn't use sky hooks, of course, like this. But he did invent a series of unique novel cranes, which did the picture. Now these, in, in Darwin's Dangerous Idea, I talk about sky hooks and cranes. And I said, skyhooks are miracles. They're impossible. There are no such things. But of course, I didn't have this in mind. Somebody just sent me this picture a few weeks ago. There's a, there's a blimp company that, that, that call their blimps skyhooks. And so uh, I do acknowledge, I think, in Darwin's Dangerous Idea, when I first used the term skyhook, I said, you know, I'm not talking about helicopters. I'm not talking about blimps. Uh, uh, well, here are, here are some of these uh, Renaissance cranes without which you could not have made uh, the dome. It would have looked like a miracle if you didn't have these, these ways, these non-miraculous, ingeniously designed ways of, 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 of lifting things. So as long as you see the mind as a skyhook, as a sort of device that just hangs there miraculously in the air, then you're going to find free will baffling as a sort of miracle. And indeed, some philosophers have said as much the people who are fans of the strange doctrine called agent causation have often said, or quote Rod Chisholm as saying, that on this view of free will, uh, a human agent ha has a power that normally is only granted to God, being an unmoved mover. Uh, so, so some people, they want the mind to be a skyhook. Here's the question. Is mind and free will derivable 
from mere living tissue by evolutionary processes? Can we get here, that is, my consciousness, my ego, my free will, from there? And if you think the answer is no, then you're a mind creationist. So let's just review how, how, that, how that journey from there to here might run. And we really, really want to go back quite a ways. Uh, and see, I know my answer is that yes, and the only way, it's the only way to make scientific sense of free will. And we're going to go right back to the basement and look at the simplest first step, and that's what this is, is a motor protein. It's not alive. It's just a protein. And it's marching along. It carries things around inside cells. You've got trillions and trillions of these in your body right now. Motor proteins. They're little robots, little nanorobots. We're made, in fact, of trillions of mindless little robots, and they don't have free will. Not a one of them knows who we are or cares. But we know, and we care. And the question is, how come? How can that happen? That's the task of explaining how free will is possible. Next step I want to talk about very briefly is one of the great transitional moments in evolutionary history, the eukaryotic revolution. And it happened. Two and a, roughly two and a half billion years ago, when all there was on the planet were these simple cells, sort of like bacteria, called prokaryotes. And one day, one prokaryote was invaded by another, A, B. Now the question was, was B eating A, or was A invading B? When you're a prokaryote, this is a little hard to figure out. Basically, if A takes B apart, then A was eating B. If B takes A apart, then, then, then B is sort of eating from within and is, is the predator. But what happened on this one occasion, and it may have only happened once, was that B didn't take A apart, and they joined forces. And they became a B, a more potent and fitter combo than either A or B by themselves. The result was a more complicated cell that was fitter. Not, uh, we call those eukaryotes. The eu, of course, the, the Greek for, for good, as in euphemism and so forth. So this was, or euphonious. The eukaryotic cell was a better cell, just more competent. So here we see on the left uh, a simple prokaryote. On the right, we see uh, a eukaryotic cell. And, and these here, the mitochondria, those, those were some of those original invaders. And every cell, every human cell in your body has mitochondria in it, which are the direct descendants of, of, of this original invader. And uh, they, it has its own DNA. That's, what, that's mitochondrial DNA. It has its own genome. Now, why do I go on about this? After all, this is humanity center. This is here I am spending all this time sort of basic science. Because I think this eukaryotic revolution, which was one of the great transitional moments in, in the history of evolution on the planet, is a nice model for what happened much more recently. I'm going to get to that. 
So as I say, eukaryotes are more talented, more versatile. Here it gives you an example. I love this picture. What is this sort of amazing sand object? It's in fact the house made by an amoeba, by Diflugia coronata, which is a eukaryotic cell, a single eukaryotic cell. It has no nervous system, but it can make one of those. No bacterium could make something like that. So we have two different kinds of sandcastles <laughs> on the left and the right. And the thing is to say, how, how can we make the transition from one kind of sandcastle maker to another? Uh, it's, quite, it's quite a journey. So again, eukaryotes, this versatility permitted a division of labor. And that was the necessary step for multicellular life. Every living thing that's big enough to see with the naked eye is a multicellular organism. It's a eukaryote. It's made of eukaryotic cells. Only made possible because of the division labors. You could have bone cells, muscle cells, uh, blood cells, brain cells. You could have all these different kinds of cells because more moving parts, more complications, uh, uh, in, in more versatility in the individual cells. Here, for instance, is a fairly simple eukaryote. This is a caddis fly, obviously multicellular. And it makes this amazing food sieve. If you study this, you see this is very clever. The, the water comes in at the top, and it's, uh, this is in a, in a moving stream. And it goes down through this sieve where the, where the food sticks to the sieve, and the caddis larva can then just you know, f feed off the food. Uh, it's, a, it's a very ingenious bit of engineering. It bears a certain interesting resemblance to another bit of engineering, and that's a lobster trap. Well, what's the big difference between these two ways of gathering food from water? Well, in both cases, there are reasons. There are reasons for the arrangement of all the parts in the caddis larva's food sieve. There are reasons why it's this way, not that way. But they're not represented anywhere. They're not represented in the caddis fly larva, and they're not represented in evolution itself. But evolution has honored those reasons in coming up with that design. I call these reasons the free-floating rationales of evolution. There's reasons why wings are the shape they are, aerodynamic reasons. There's reasons why eyes are the shape they are, reasons of optics and others. These reasons are not represented by evolution, but are tracked by evolution. Well, let's look at a few examples. I want to look at a, at a cuckoo chick. Uh, as you know, cuckoos are uh, brood parasites. Cuckoos do not lay their own eggs. I mean, they lay them, but they don't, they don't incubate them. They, they parasitize the nest of another species. They wait, the mother uh, cuckoo waits until the, the parents, the, the, the witless, unwitting foster parents have flown away after they've laid their own eggs. She swoops down, lays her egg in the nest, then often, not always, pushes one of the host eggs out. This is in case the hosts can count. <laughs> and flies away never to return. The host raises the, incubates the eggs. The, the, another clever reason, the, the cuckoo eggs tend to hatch first. There's a reason for that. And the first thing that the little fledgling cuckoo does is it 
pushes and pushes and pushes to push the other eggs out of the nest. Ooh. So everybody, I think everybody can see the reasons here. And I, but, but just in case, you, you might like to see, I found this lovely bit of, of video. The cuckoo's egg looks like the warbler's, and the number of eggs hasn't changed. Everything appears normal, but appearances can be deceiving. Something is not quite right. One chick has had to weigh before the others, and it is ejecting the remaining eggs. Now, I think you probably share my sense. It's nice that the little cuckoo chick doesn't know what it's doing. <laughs> it knows not what it does. So natural selection tracks reasons creating things that have purposes, but that don't need to know them. The infamous need-to-know principle of the CIA also reigns in the biosphere, but for different reasons. In the biosphere, it's just a matter of economy. If you don't need to know, you can be the beneficiary without understanding. There are reasons, but you don't need to know them. Now, birds. Baby cuckoos, I'm quite sure, have no clue why they're doing what they're doing. They're just doing it because that's what they're wired up to do. But that doesn't mean that birds are just completely idiotic. And now I want to show you, as a contrast, another bird. This is a New Caledonian crow. There's no sound with this. So it's trying to reach the food in the bottom of this beaker, and it's got a piece of wire in its beak. Not working. Can't get it. Uh, persistent. Now look what it does. It gets the edge of the wire, sticks it in some place, and bends it. And makes a hook. <laughs> <laughs> now, what we have here, uh, Ruth Milliken, one of my favorite philosophers, has a nice passage where she describes not this case but similar cases where she talks about animals that represent their goals in the same representational system in which they represent their facts. This is a big step forward. This is an evolutionary innovation of considerable importance. So we're not the only ones that have it, but we have it uh, in, in spades. I want to move on now. So as I say, it's a long way from, from uh, the, the amoeba to the kids and their sandcastles. And let's look briefly at the tree of life. This is, uh, may not look like a tree to you until you realize this is a bird's eye view of a tree. You're looking down from on top. Uh, the root at the center is, is uh, where uh, that, that uh, sort of why there is uh, the last common ancestor, Luca, the last common ancestor of all the living things on the planet today. And we have the bacteria, the archaea. And down at the bottom here, we have the, we have the eukarya, the eukaryotes, us. And you'll see that the 
scientists who did it, this is already a little bit out of date. The, some of the lines have been a bit redrawn since this was done about 10 years ago. Uh, has, put, has put three species. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, uh, first, let me, a little digression. Here's David Brooks writing in the New York Times not so long ago. According to this view, human beings, presumably the sort of view that I'm, uh, you know, promoting tonight, uh, according to this view, human beings, like all other creatures, are machines for passing along their genetic code. We are driven primarily by a desire to perpetuate ourselves and our species. We are driven primarily by a desire to perpetuate ourselves and our species. That sentence I call the standard mistake. It is not true. And if you think it is, you're simply being taken in by a very common caricature, uh, uh, a, a feeble caricature of what the evolutionary perspective actually is. So let's go back to our tree of life. So all of these are genetically related, of course. And we see on the eukarya, if we close up on, close up on we see the th last three branches, we see three closely related genera, Coprinus, Homo, and Zea. That's mushrooms, corn, and us. <laughs> Our close cousins, the mushrooms and the corn. And we are closer genetically to, to mushrooms and corn than we are to all the other things on the tree of life. Of course, that was only a partial drawing of the tree of life. So it probably isn't all about genes. So the whole tree of life has been growing for about three and a half billion years. So for the first billion years, there were just prokaryotes. There were no eukaryotes. But it's only six million years since we have evolved away from our common ancestor with the bonobos and the chimpanzees. And all the differences between us and the bonobos and the chimpanzees are due that are due to R&D that has occurred in the last six million years only. Now I want to move much more recent in time, just 10,000 years ago. This is about the time of the dawn of agriculture. And Paul McCready makes a calculation that I just love to point out to people. So 10,000 years ago, the human population was pretty small. But it had started, it had started, it had livestock and they had pets, they had domesticated some animals. And he calculates that at that point, human beings plus their livestock and, and pets amounted to about a tenth of a percent of the terrestrial vertebrate biomass. Now that doesn't include the insects or the worms, it doesn't include the fish. We're talking about vertebrates, animals, really, in the everyday sense of the word. Tenth of one percent, this was only 10,000 years ago. And what do you suppose the percentage is today? 50? 40? 98? We have simply swamped the planet. Now, most of that's cattle. <laughs> but that, in 10,000 years, that is a stupendous biological change to the planet due to one species, us. 
Paul McCready, late Paul McCready, a wonderful visionary uh, engineer, he's the man who built the Gossamer Albatross, the human-pedaled uh, bicycle-driven uh, plane that crossed the English Channel, uh, the, the, the first great green engineer. Over billions of years on a unique sphere, chance has painted a thin covering of life. I love that image. Chance has painted a thin covering of life, complex, improbable, wonderful, and fragile. Suddenly, we humans, a recently arrived species, no longer subject to the checks and balances inherent in nature, have grown in population, technology, and intelligence to a position of terrible power. We now wield the paintbrush. All that in just 10,000 years. I want to compare it with the famous Cambrian explosion that Steve Gould made so, so well known, which occurred over millions of years, about 530 million years ago. That's when all those strange and wonderful body plans emerged. That was a truly momentous period of R&D for evolution. But the McCready explosion, if we may call it that, has occurred over just 10,000 years, only 500 generations. It can't be about genes. It's got to be about technology and culture and language. Carried by a second information highway from parents to offspring. And here's where I bring in Richard Dawkins' famous or notorious idea of memes as cultural replicators. Memes are analogous to genes, he says, or he says they're analogous to viruses, which are sort of naked genes. In fact, I like to say that, what's a virus? It's not alive, it's, it's just a big macromolecule. What it is, is it's a string of nucleic acid with attitude. <laughs> what means that? It means it has, simply because of its shape in the end, it has the power to provoke its own replication when it, when it gets in another cell. It commandeers the, the, the reproduction machinery of a cell and gets the cell's reproductive machinery to make copies of it rather than copies of its own genome. That's what a virus is. A meme is a similar sort of thing. It's a data structure. It's made of information with attitude. It provokes its own copying in a certain sort of copy machine called a brain. And every time a meme gets reproduced in your head, every time you rehearse it or say it to yourself, you make another copy. Say it to me. Every time you rehearse it, you make another copy. Every time you rehearse it, you make another copy. Those are generations. They're copies of the one that went just before. And there's a competition among these items for what? Just to replicate. And that process has fueled, driven another evolutionary process, a Darwinian process, cultural evolution. And without that, we wouldn't have the McCready, the revolution at all. So what I'm saying is that we're apes with infected brains. And that what they're infected with what? Well, with virtual machines designed by natural selection. And these virtual machines give us powers which give us the versatility to take organization up a level. Remember the eukaryotes, they, they got invaded and that gave them great versatility. Pause for a moment and think about this. When, when 
the, the ancestor of mitochondria entered that other prokaryote, there was a billion years of R&D already invested in that before it ever came in. It was, it was a well-designed thing before it ever joined forces. And some of our ideas, some of the things that we transmit culturally are also well-designed. None of us had to design long division or, or the wheel or writing. We were simply given these wonderful technologies whole and allowed to then build on them. Our power depends on the culture that permits us to divide labor and share expertise in a way that nothing else has ever been able to do. Uh, a friend, a former student of mine, Bo Dalbum, famously said, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands, you can't do much thinking with your bare brain. I think that's exactly right. You need thinking tools. The chief variety of them are words. Unfortunately, there are a lot of them lying around. So if we think of words as tools, and we think of the diversity of words, where do they all come from? Very few words are coined. Not, probably not one in, in 10,000 is coined. One that is, of course, is meme. Dawkins coined that word. But I don't think I, any other word that I will have used tonight will have been coined by an individual. They all have uh, uh, ancestries going way back uh, into earlier languages and so forth. There have been thousands of languages. Did they have a common ancestor? That's a question for another day. Since words travel between languages, a biologist would call that anastomosis, branch joining, horizontal transmission. Since this was rife in language, it's much easier to track words than to track languages, to see that a word will move from Latin to French to English and so forth. And so it's useful to think of the word itself as the unit that is up for replicative challenge and is up to out-replicate the competition. Since Chomsky, we've been used to the fact that words are parts of grammars and the gra uh, parts of languages that have grammars. But I just want to draw your attention to the fact that, that words are not always elements of grammatical constructions. They can be remarkably uh, free of, of particular grammatical uh, limitations. They can even change from being nouns to verbs and so forth as they move from language to language. Passwords, labels, imprecations are examples of words which have uses as tools quite independently of any grammar at all. What are they made of? Well, there isn't a good word for this. Technique. They're, they're sort of recipes for action. Yeah, after all, what's long division made of? Wonderful tool. It's, it's a sort of algorithm. It is an algorithm. It's sort of like a Java applet. What's cost-benefit analysis made of? We have lots of these thinking tools that are made out of information. They are virtual machines made of information. And it is this technology that's remade the brain and that makes our minds. Doug Hofstadter, I'm so pleased to see that he was one of my predecessors a few years ago giving a presidential lecture. Uh, also, of course, a Stanford uh, graduate. And in one of his books, he has a toolkit. Just a short list. These are terms in Doug's toolkit. And it's a nice list. Wild goose chases, tackiness, dirty tricks, sour grapes, elbow grease, feet of clay, loose cannons, crackpots. 
lip service, one of my favorites, slam dunks. If you have these tools, you can do things that you can't do without them. Of course, as the old saw has it, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so when you get a new one of these tools, you tend to overuse it for a while. Right? But they are tools. And he didn't invent a one of them. So now we have to confront this delicate transition from bottom-up Darwinian R&D to top-down creative genius type R&D, intelligent design. Because certainly today we are capable of designing things with foresight, with intention. We've crossed some kind of important divide. Well, let's stop and just take stock a little bit. Who designed the treasures that we share? Well, in some cases, we can name particular great heroes of, of, of intellectual design, Pythagoras and Plato and Descartes and Newton, Shakespeare and Austin and Madame Curie and the rest. But nobody designed language, but it's beautifully designed. Nobody designed tonal music, but it's elegantly designed. Did anybody invent the decimal number system? Not really. Did anybody invent the map? Not really. Did anybody invent money? It's an interesting question. Economic historians argue about it. I think we should understand this process with the background of what I call Darwin's trio. This is the 150th anniversary of the publication of the Origin of Species. And if you haven't read it, you should. It is a great book. It is, it's a great read. It's just wonderfully written. And pedagogically, it's brilliant, too. He begins the book by talking about what he calls methodical selection. Animal breeding, plant breeding, pigeon fanciers, cattle breeders, where they have intention. They're setting out to improve the breed. Then he segues into what he wonderfully calls unconscious selection. This is where human beings, without realizing it, without trying to do it, they're changing their domesticated animals unconsciously by simply favoring some over others. They're not trying to improve the breed. There's no intent. But nevertheless, it's changing. And then he segues from this, then, into natural selection, which, where you eliminate the middleman altogether. There's no intelligence at all. It's just the vicissitudes of nature that are doing the selection. Now, it's important to remember, actually, all three are varieties of natural selection. Methodical selection is simply natural selection where one species, like a cow, is being subjected to very severe selection pressures by another species, Homo sapiens. Today, we can add a fourth, genetic engineering, where we actually, we don't wait for the right genomes to be created by methodical selection. We, we tweak it together in advance. Now, I want to say the same, the same trio, in fact, the same quartet, can be found in the land of culture. First of all, of memes, we have natural selection. I'm going to do it in the sort of historical order, of what I call synanthropic memes. These are the memes that are like squirrels and rats and pigeons. They're not domesticated, but they are well-designed to thrive in human company. Well-designed by natural selection and only by natural selection, not by any human tinkering. 
Nobody owns those animals, and nobody is favoring them, and nobody owns a lot of the memes either, and nobody favored them. They, they're like habits, some of them good, some of them bad. Then we have unconscious selection, differential replication of tunes, what the Germans love to call earworms. You know that tune that you can't get out of your head? And it copies itself, and it copies itself, and it, you're not trying to copy it, you're not memorizing it, but you can't help it. It's just in there. And then there's methodical selection of domesticated memes. I'll give you a good example. Calculus. Calculus is like a laying hen. How is calculus like a laying hen? Many species of laying hen would go extinct if it weren't for the laborious intervention of their domesticators because the broodiness is all bred out of them. They, they don't know enough to sit on their own eggs. So it takes a lot of careful attention. Similarly with calculus. You have to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. Or am I wrong? Maybe at Stanford, people just can't get that calculus out of their head. It's just, you know, it's just so catchy. You know, uh, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Maybe for a few people. And of course, we have mimetic engineering, too. Advertising. Spin doctors. People trying very hard to engineer memes that, that will fly, that will really spread. Sometimes they succeed, usually they don't. Bootstrapping. I'll say a little word about bootstrapping. It's worked in the past and it can work again. Okay, here's a simple example. How do you draw a straight line? Well, it's simple. You get a piece of paper, a pencil, and a straight edge, and you draw the line. Oh, where'd you get the straight edge? Hmm. How do you make a straight edge? Well, you go to a straight-edge manufacturer <laughs> who's got this really good tool, which has got a really straight edge. Where do you get that? The history of straight edges turns out to be pretty interesting. I went and researched it a few years ago. And, and, and tremendous progress was made over the years. And you've you got to start somewhere. And you know, pulling a, a wire tight is a good start, but it's not good enough. Here's, here's a, I got this from a book about, about uh, straight edges, actually. This is a box-type straight edge. This is in the 50s. And that was a pretty darn good straight edge. It, was, it, 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 it was, had good properties. It didn't, it didn't flex too much, and it didn't expand too much, and sort of self-proving in various ways. So that's, that's about as good a straight edge as you could make back there in the 50s. But here is a graph showing the imperfections in that straight edge. Doesn't look very straight, does it? That line, that's, that's the surface of that straight edge magnified uh, uh, a million times. Why I think this is important to look at is, what, can you think of what this is? By representing the task of making a straight edge and representing the error, we can define and refine the very ideal of a perfectly straight edge. The form of the straight, as Plato would say, was arrived at by a series of approximations, both the artifacts and of the idea itself. And in particular, representations of the ideal served to guide the improvement of that ideal, making ever better and better straight edges. I think the form of the good, again to speak with Plato, had a similar history. What makes us human is our brain children, not our biological children. By the way, I really dislike this use of the word biological to mean genetic. 
There is so much more to biology than genes. When somebody says, well, the biological parents, or are you adoptive parents? Both biological. You're not the genetic parents, but you are the biological parents. Anyway, we alone, we represent our reasons. We're the only species on the planet that does that. Finally, you understand my title. We say things, every child says, why did you do that? Or he gets asked, why did you do that? This word why introduces a very important practice, the practice of sharing reasons, comparing reasons, criticizing reasons, rebutting reasons, give and take of reasoning together. This is what enables us to devise moralities, to compare them, to persuade each other. In other words, I'm suggesting that the word responsibility wears its meaning on its sleeve. It's because we can respond to this question. That's what gives us the freedom that matters. We say free as a bird, but seagulls aren't as free as we are for a very simple reason. They can't represent their reasons, and so they can't have very fancy reasons. We can be moved by reasons that we represent, including reasons about things that might happen hundreds of years from now. And this is unlike the evolutionary process itself, remember, which does not represent its reasons. Unlike evolution itself and all of its other creatures, we can see across the valleys of the fitness landscapes. Fitness landscapes are, are, are an interesting, somewhat controversial uh, uh, meme uh, in evolutionary theory where we use them to understand that, that evolution can only hill climb. It can't get from one peak to a neighboring peak unless it can somehow get down in the valley and up. And in general, it can't hill climb. Evolutionary processes with no foresight can't get across those gaps. But we can because we can represent the hills and valleys. And then we can see the goals that would otherwise be invisible. We, the reason representers, can now look back today, and we can discover the reasons everywhere in the tree of life. It took Darwin to discover that a mindless process created all those reasons. We intelligent designers are among the very recent effects, not the cause, of all those purposes. Thank you for your attention. I think philosophy is what anybody's doing when they haven't yet figured out what the right question to ask is. Uh, once you figure out what the right question is, then you go and use whatever tools are right, and that's physics or history or whatever, to answer the question. But when you're in that initial stage where everybody's sort of scratching their head and they're, they can't even agree on what the right question is, that's philosophy. And, and the purpose of philosophy is to turn that quandary into answerable questions. <laughs> yes? Uh, is it uh, saying that only humans can represent their reasons kind of like defining a straight line? I mean, if we look closely enough, wouldn't we find representation to a degree in other species? Good question. And and I think I maybe slightly overstated the case. I, 
I have been working and talking with uh, cognitive ethologists and animal psychologists for some time, trying to explore the various ways of getting at that question. And, but to a first approximation, I think all of the attempts to show that, that animals really do represent their reasons uh, are fairly underwhelming. Um, I showed you what is as, as good a case as I know, that, that New Caledonian crow uh, uh, making the hook. Um, there are other striking cases, but it's very good to remember how, however smart your doggy is, when he when his leash gets wrapped around the tree, can he undo it? Probably not. Now that is not rocket science, but it does seem to escape even the smartest of doggies. Interestingly, a lot of the most impressive behavior that we see in other species has a very strong genetic component, like, like um, border collies. Uh, very interesting case, because border collies have this incredible talent for herding sheep, which is partly genetic. It, it really is. Um, uh, they will, they will, when they sort of reach puppy maturity, they'll just start herding sheep without any training at all. And that's interesting because this is a case where cultural evolution, raising sheep, has interacted with genetic evolution in, in, a, in, a, in another species. So this is an interaction between cultural evolution and genetic evolution. Interestingly, I'm pretty sure that the children of Basque shepherds are no better at herding sheep than anybody else on the face of the globe. But the children of their dogs are. <laughs> uh, I think I see where this is headed. Uh, Gee, I thought I got there. <laughs> Unless freedom is just defined as acting on reasons that are represented, I don't see how we've gotten to freedom yet. And it seems to me there needs to be some argument that freedom is just acting on representative Good. Well, I only had a little time. <laughs> and you're right, of course. Uh, now, uh, uh, there are two whole books, Elbow Room and Freedom Evolves, where I attempt to provide precisely those, those arguments. And that's, that's where it goes from here. But the, the main point that I wanted to stress is that uh, bird freedom is maybe wonderful, but it isn't the kind of freedom that matters to us if what matters to us is moral responsibility. And in the end, I think that the hidden agenda, not so hidden sometimes, that drives most of the anxiety about both Turing and Darwin and about materialism in general is that people want to be held responsible. They want to think of themselves as having free will. And they have it in their head that this is impossible unless, uh, as I've said at one point, it's sort of like moral levitation. You know, it's only if they can make their choices from some elevated spot which is not part of the causal fabric of the rest of the universe uh, they think that that's a requirement for having the kind of free will they want. I think that's a deep mistake, but it takes a while to argue for it. You're right.
that will be it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. One more thing. I can't, I can't resist. This is humanities. We got to have some humanities. We got to have a little foreign language. We got to have a little Greek and Latin. So just a little, little take home bonbon. Uh, you're all familiar with this, the Darwin fish, the little legged fish that says D-A-R-W-I-N. And of course, it's a play on the Christian fish symbol. And one day I was at an evolution conference, and Murray Gell-Mann, the physicist, came up to me and he said, well, Dan, you know that the, the fish was, that's the first acronym. And it is, in fact, he's right. Um, 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 ichthys is the uh, Greek word for fish. Uh, and it's that, whoop, it's off the side of there, isn't it? Um, Jesus Christos Theon Eos Soter, Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior. Uh, and it was because of this that, so the story goes, that the early Christians chose that, that fish symbol. Uh, to, uh, he said, I said, yeah, I knew that, Murray, actually, but thanks for reminding me of it. Um, and he said, what I want to know is, what does D-A-R-W-I-N stand for? <laughs> and, well, I... I did take Latin back in high school. And so I said, give me, I'll go get a cup of coffee, Mary. I'll come back and I'll tell you. I came up with something I, I confess I'm pretty proud of. Uh, uh, not Greek, but Latin. All right, so what does it say? It says, you can get the letters off. Delere, remember Carthago delenda est, delete. Delere auctorem rerum ut universum, that's W. <laughs> <laughs> Infinitum noscas. Destroy the author of things in order to understand the infinite universe. <laughs> Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.